Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to the Think Humanities podcast. In A History of American Higher Education, John Thielen writes, Colleges and universities are among the most cherished and controversial institutions in the United States. Thielen says the experience of going to college has been central to American life for generations. Thielen is a university research professor in the University of Kentucky College of Education Department of Educational Policy Studies and Evaluation. His History of American Higher Education has been named one of the 10 best books about higher education in 2019 by Forbes magazine. The announcement included this. Scholars of higher education have long recognized Thielen's authoritative work as an indispensable source for studying the early developments and current issues defining American colleges and universities. Published by John Hopkins University Press, the book explores higher education from its founding in the 17th century to present day. John, it's great to have you back, uh, uh, or to see you again, but to have you before our microphones. Thank you, very good to be here. And what an honor it is for you. It, it is indeed, and it was a, a pleasant holiday surprise, a stocking stuffer. <laughs> Bigger than a stocking though, or a mighty yeah. big. Yeah. But um, so I, I wanna talk about the book and some of your other uh, writing and research uh, too. But to begin uh, to even imagine that the time period that you examined and researched from the 17th century to present day must have been an enormous undertaking. Actually, it was uh, a bit like being an author uh, in the uh, candy shop uh, with free reign. Uh, it's it's a, a magical mystery tour uh, and I don't know if I make sense of it all, but I sure enjoy exploring it. Tell me about uh, the exploration and the beginnings of it if you go back as far as the 17th century. Usually colleges, when they publish their own histories, they always use the theme of uh, uh, from small acorns, mighty oaks grow. Well, I wanted to follow that uh, evolution. And what I try to do is in each era, look at some of the same questions that faced families and their uh, children on where to go to college, can we afford it, uh, who goes where to college. And these issues, uh, they were important in uh, 1700s as well as in the 21st century. So you're essentially saying that some of those uh, early challenges for parents and, and children were faced by those uh, folks uh, many generations ago to present day, which we live with and, and know about uh, today. If you've either, if you're a student or if you've put a student through school or if you're helping to support someone, it, it's really, uh, the, the, the questions are the same? Yes, they are. And, and what's so fascinating is that when one goes back in time, we find these fascinating episodes of exclusion and opportunity. And there's this distinctive American creative tension uh, about making college affordable and accessible because college, 
then and now has been a key to being part of uh, the American dream uh, and American society. What did you mean about, um, uh, and if you will just uh, elaborate a bit on uh, college and universities, the most cherished and controversial institutions, and you do say, uh, obviously going back to the 16 and 1700s, uh, the experience of going to college has been central to American life for generations. Talk about that uh, central part of American life for generations. There's a paradox, I think, in American popular culture that uh, Americans of many, many uh, groups and backgrounds are fascinated by colleges. They love to visit and look at campuses. They want their children to go. But with that popularity and magnetism, become transcend into very hard questions about uh, where do I fit into this? Uh, what is it like to be a first-gen student? Uh, what if you are the daughter or son of an alum? All these percolate through every dining room table in every American home. And aren't we still uh, asking the question about first-generation students today? Because uh, you hear often um, that there are still many who are going to school and be the first member of their family to do so. Very much so. And, and the, the puzzle is that as a nation, we have been a leader in trying to uh, provide access uh, to, to virtually any student who wishes to go beyond high school. And our success has been admirable, but our expectations are also very high. So therefore, that brings disappointments and questions. The um, volume that uh, won you the award, or at least the compilation of that uh, in the third edition, also includes a new chapter, and I'm trying to find out uh, what you uh, titled that, uh, Prominence and what was the... Um, and Problems. And Problems. Uh, talk a, a little bit about that edition in this third edition that uh, just came out. Uh, talk about uh, that, if you will, and how you address the problems and prominence. One thing I try to do as an historian is to connect past and present. And writing about the recent past is both exciting and challenging. Uh, I think that on, on one level, American higher education is admired worldwide. It is a pace setter. Our accomplishments are extraordinary. Yet at the same time, I think our presidents and boards of trustees and donors are facing a very serious slate of challenges that mean we cannot be complacent. Do you address the uh, problem that we are faced with today uh, on student debt and, and how uh, it historically has always been there, and, and, but uh, is it any worse today than it was uh, given the cost of living adjustments and so forth uh, back uh, many years ago? Yeah. That, that's a very central theme. And, and, and ironically, I am a participant observer, not only as a scholar, but as one who did go to college. And, and I would argue that uh, if we were to go back to the 1970s, bipartisan Congress saw student loans as a very generous um, assisting program. And what has happened in the ensuing decades, I think, was, would be very disappointing and surprising. Uh, there was never any intent that there would be such massive indebtedness, which has been largely a product, I would say, of the last 20 years. Uh, why? Because loans were supposed to be affordable. 
Uh, they were intended to be uh, paid back with reasonable terms, often with uh, very generous conditions for service in which loans would be forgiven. Uh, it, was, it was not intended to be a moneymaker. It was supposed to be an enabler. So where and who uh, began to change that model? What happened in uh, the late 1970s was the passage of the Middle Income Student Assistance Act, uh, which provided unusually low interest rate, uh, loans for college students. And it was an example of a program that just spiraled out of control. And I think the, the entry of uh, a variety of uh, commercial lenders into the market uh, tended to transform unwittingly uh, into more of an enterprise rather than an educational program. When did we first see nonprofit uh, versus for-profit institutions? One interesting finding in the history of, of American higher education is that we have always had uh, a substantial for-profit uh, enterprise. Uh, the difference is that the, the escalation of enrollments, I think, really started to take off with internet programs um, offered by such institutions as the University of Phoenix, and uh, they, they came to occupy uh, a disproportionate strand of, of the enrollment configuration. So another thing to blame on the internet. <laughs> in a way. Well, and except well, I, I, no, what I blame is when I don't have my internet connection. Uh -huh. uh, the uh, Johns Hopkins uh, University Press uh, uh, did a really nice job of, of writing up your book and, um, and, and the press release that uh, the University of Kentucky uh, put out. Uh, reading from that, um, some of the press, covering issues of social class, race, gender, and ethnicity uh, in each era and chapter of the new edition showcases a fresh concluding chapter that focuses on both the opportunities and problems American higher education has faced since 2010. If you can, break down a little bit and talk about social class, race, gender. Uh, gender. If, if we looked at a profile of American colleges and universities today, there is a drastic split where we find, for example, some very prestigious, uh, strong institutions may receive 20 applicants per slot. Elsewhere, we find demographic change like population decline and some very, very good colleges, public and independent, uh, are uh, not able to attract an adequate number of enrolling students. So it's this imbalance uh, that has thrown off the whole. And again, why? In part, I think that uh, branding and the star system, whether it be in athletic shoes or in colleges, uh, or in marketing any product uh, draws uh, an inordinate number of families and students uh, and their high school counselors to look at a small number of institutions uh, and to overlook some of the excellent opportunities close at hand and close to home. Are, are there problems in both public and independent institutions uh, and their longevity at this point in our in our history of American higher education? The one historic uh, feature I would add in is that almost all colleges and universities in America and then in the United States have always struggled from year to year to make sure they have an adequate uh, enrollment of good students uh, and of balancing their budgets. So financial crisis is more a norm 
uh, than an aberration. But I think that this is a juncture uh, that both some public and some independent institutions are definitely at risk in terms of uh, solvency and survival. And some of those, without naming them, are in Kentucky? Yes, they are indeed. And they, they are pretty much in, in every state. It is something of a, uh, an equal opportunity adversity. Uh, and, and some of that relates to our demographic patterns in the Commonwealth, uh, but also I think of um, underappreciated institutions that offer very, very good educational experience and don't receive the acknowledgement they deserve. And there's a possibility that uh, unless something changes, they will go out of existence? Most likely, I, I don't think many will go out of existence, but I liken it to uh, automobiles with deflated tires. Uh, they're, they're going to wobble along. And it would just take a little bit of resources, I think, to help them uh, get back to speed. As a historian, are you concerned about uh, the balance between uh, technology um, with STEM, uh, STEAM, and the humanities? I think the imbalance has been historically in place for a long time, whether it be 60 years ago and the rise of uh, health uh, research and medical centers. Uh, technology has always been both uh, an opportunity and uh, a, a new learning experience of adjustment. So I see that as just a continuation of a long time challenge that each college faces. What um, the, the research that you mentioned and that we talked about at the beginning of uh, the podcast, could you just give uh, the, the lay researcher out there uh, an idea of how you went about this today compared to maybe a decade or two ago when you were writing, and we're going to talk about a couple of uh, uh, your other books. Uh, did you, did you, were you able to stay in your office and do most of it by the Internet? I still go to libraries. Uh, I go to bookstores. Uh, I love reading student memoirs. I love reading fiction and novels about colleges. And so I think the Internet has greatly enhanced my ability to do that. Uh, at the same time, uh, I am a bibliophile. Well, talk a little bit about uh, some of your recommendations, some of the books uh, that have been written about students, uh, uh, fiction or nonfiction, and, or about universities and colleges. What, what, what has attracted you to, um, to that uh, area? If, if one wanted to obtain uh, an interesting glimpse of student life at elite colleges a century ago, I would recommend the novel Stover at Yale. Mm -hmm. And it is a, a delightful and sobering trip back in time. Um, I think what we're finding, it's interesting, the fiction and novels reflect changes in gender, race, social class, uh, and, and it's the students who write novels as soon as they graduate that are the eyes and ears that are picking up on these demographic changes in our institutions. And, and uh, who are some of those? Do you, can you recall just a, somebody who's published and published widely uh, right after graduating? I would say most novels about college life are written mm -hmm. by recent graduates. So they tend to be, shall we say, intense uh -huh. uh, in, in their recall. But, but the, 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 
the numbers are so great. I, I'm, yeah. I'm at risk to, to select out uh, individuals, but it really does follow uh, the de demographic change. Yeah. Uh, Stover at Yale is uh, nonfiction? Fiction. 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 All right. Well, I'm going to write that one but, down. But on the other hand, you have to remember, uh, I consider university budget reports uh, to be also a great source of fiction. Oh, a great source of fiction. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, I must ask why you've come to that conclusion. Well, uh, they have a plot, they have a cast, uh, and they have interchangeable parts. And uh, the, the, the prose patterns and paragraphs are, are dramatic, if not always accurate. Uh, one section, uh, looking at now at the table of contents, uh, after your most recent addition to this third edition, Prominence and Problems American Higher Education since 2010, uh, you have essay on sources. Could you give us an inkling of, of what that is? Yes, I, I see uh, history as uh, an active uh, event. It's not a spectator sport. And I welcome readers to join me in going back and reading some of the delightful, serious works that I've encountered so that they do not have to take my word for it. I want readers to explore for themselves, to go through these building blocks that I used. And, and more often than not, uh, we find reinterpretations. Uh, I have been very frequently corrected for my errors of fact and logic. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the ongoing wonderful game. Uh, you have some um, really nice friends, um, uh, uh, whether you not you know them or not, and they have written uh, blurbs, reviews uh, for your book. Uh, d do you know all of them? Have you run into them over your career? The, these are our longtime colleagues who have become friends, and you have mentioned the Internet. Uh, email and other forms uh, of communication provides a, a daily, weekly dialogue. And um, it's often uh, no holds barred. So uh, they, were, they were very kind indeed. And that's when uh, the publisher uh, s sends them a, uh, a copy of the book before it's published, uh, lets them look at a draft and, or, or read the entire book and, and then make a comment or... Yes, and what I would say is that these are very small worlds in that uh, the, the, the networks and uh, uh, interchanges among colleagues, there are very few secrets, and I think it provides uh, healthy both praise and criticism. We must um, also include in that praise and criticism humor, uh, because one of the uh, reviewers, uh, Mary Beth Gasman yes. from the University of Pennsylvania, writes his humor, engaging writing, and vast knowledge of uh, uh, make history come alive for the readers as he pushes them to consider the historical foundations of the current issues, uh, scandals, challenges, and successes within the higher education context. Just to make this uh, podcast uh, nice and juicy, uh, give us the latest or one of the scandals that you write of. Well, I'm fascinated by the ability of a number of large universities that have had scandals with abuses uh, of their health staff in uh, athletic programs. Uh, how, how are they managing to uh, delve into their endowments to pay insurance liability uh, and all kinds of, uh, 
uh, problems. And also there are a number of uh, university presidents who have transferred from one state institution to another, namely the flagship university to the penitentiary. And so <laughs> that is lifelong learning. <laughs> exactly. Um, has college athletics gotten too big to make a turn toward the way it used to be? Actually, the, one of the benefits of the historical perspective is I would argue that college sports was relatively just as big, just as promising and problematic a century ago as it is today. What it is, it's unique, I think, in the world that academic institutions embrace as an important part uh, of their offerings uh, these incredible uh, athletic programs both for spectators and student athletes alike. So I don't see the, the current problems and, and gains in college sports today as uh, out of character with earlier eras. Should athletes be paid? I would put it this way. I'd be careful uh, what you wish for. There will be always be a very few small number of wonderfully talented student athletes who will have great market appeal. Uh, I think of Katie Ledecky, uh, the Stanford swimmer, a young woman who signed a $7 million endorsement contract. More power to her. She's an honor student. She won five Olympic gold medals, led her Stanford team to two NCAA championships. However, go down the rosters, and I worry that student-athletes usually will overvalue their market appeal. Uh, John, you've um, you've written um, a number of books, um, and you've uh, done research all of your career. Um, talk about a couple of them, especially. Uh, I think the latest uh, book is uh, going to college in the '60s. Uh, until you did this uh, third edition, this update. Uh, so, talk about that book. That was a, a book I delayed writing for a long time. I wrote it in, in coincidence with the 50th anniversary of a lot of the events uh, of the mid and late 1960s. My reluctance was that this was an era exactly where I was in high school and then in college. And in writing history close at hand, I did not want to bring uh, my personal biases to completely shape. And I think it's a very misunderstood and important decade. And that uh, the, the dilemma is the peaks of media coverage and of student activism, yes, they are very important. I try to balance that with the story of what college was like for most students uh, in that decade. Was it a decade of uh, activism and protest? Yes, indeed it was. Uh, but I would think that would I would say that was for a significant minority. I what I would see is the defining experience for most undergraduates uh, of that decade is that they may not have been active uh, deliberately in student protest, but they listened and watched and heeded and observed and absorbed uh, what would be a lifetime of images and information. Uh, and complications in American culture. Of course, that was such a crucial period of time uh, for foreign policy and war, too, which had to, I'm sure, um, play 
uh, a significant role in the uh, role of higher education in America. Yes, and, and, and one of the interesting uh, findings from that decade was how involved American research universities were in a variety of fields of applied research uh, for the Department of Defense uh, and a range of other activities uh, that it was not only undergraduate protest, it was also research faculty who connected uh, the university to the really important issues and policies uh, of our nation during that decade. It seems like to me that you still uh, relish uh, engagement with the, uh, the wider world, uh, reading and researching. Um, I'm not misreading you on that, am I? No, I've, I've always seen my work as uh, I'm a social historian who has uh, a love affair with the American campus. Do you, uh, are you working on something else currently? What I've been looking at most closely in the last uh, year is selective admissions. And this has included both the uh, high, vis high visibility of lawsuits against selective colleges, uh, and then also what was called the Varsity Blues scandal, where so-called country club sports, such as crew, tennis, squash, uh, have been used uh, as a side door entrance for the, the unathletic children of celebrities. So this is uh, current events. This is uh, rather uh, new to um, uh, this phenomenon that we, we know about and, and see on television, which is still going on. I think one of the uh, high profile cases um, is still yet to be heard uh, uh, this year. Uh, Talk a little bit about that. What, what interested you uh, about that? I mean, that is there, a phenomenon there, there, in, in it, the history it, of higher what, education? What you, you, what you cast as current events, I would add, I see it as living history. And the, the, some of the, the incidents, uh, they may have a new wrinkle in recent years, but they, they keep resurrecting themes that you have this, what I call an American dilemma. There are some colleges uh, that have this incredible appeal to some very, very talented uh, high school students, and how do you make choices, meaningful choices, and you look at a variety of measures of talent, and talent goes beyond the SAT and ACT scores, and I include athletics and drama, photography, dance, as well as transcripts as measures of this wonderfully competitive American culture, and the colleges are the crucible where all these varied forces are coalesce. Is a lot of that going on that has not been discovered or reported on? Are parents uh, paying schools uh, to get their kid in in a particular area more than we want to admit or, or know now, of? I, I think, let, let us call it, I would characterize that in a sense as bribery the idea of paying to have one's child in. I actually think, that, although that gets a lot of publicity, I think that's rather rare. I think the more subtle, important issue is what are the advantages uh, that a child encounters over 15 or 20 years uh, growing up in a family that has uh, high education, high expectations, uh, is sufficiently affluent to provide resources uh, that, to develop talent. And that is, to me, the more serious divide of have and have not. Did you ever think uh, that you would see the day in your career when a parent would pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a, a child in UCLA or Stanford or 
the number of other schools that were well, yes, I'm surprised at that, uh, but, but one might also argue they got a bargain basement deal um, because they didn't build a gymnasium for $10 million. <laughs> And they might, uh, besides the, uh, the bonus might be jail time uh, for some, or at least... Uh, uh, well, we, once again, that's lifelong learning. Exactly. Uh, John Thielen, uh, thanks very much uh, for being here today. John is the uh, research professor uh, at the uh, University of Kentucky uh, College of Education, Department of Educational Policy Studies and Evaluation, and uh, his new book, uh, which we have discussed, uh, The History, uh, A History of American Higher Education, uh, has been named one of the 10 best books about higher education in 2019 by Forbes magazine. John, once again, uh, congratulations on that, and thanks very much for coming in on the podcast. Thank you. A real pleasure and honor. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.